Welcome to the Longborough Podcast. I'm Polly Graham, Artistic Director of Longborough Festival Opera, a 500-seat homegrown theatre in the Cotswolds. In this episode, writer and librettist Sophie Rushbrook chats to the historian Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough and soprano Lee Bissett, who was set to have been Arbrun Hilda this summer. In their discussion, they explore the roles and mythical origins of Wagner's women. At the beginning of Das Rheingold, Wagner's music conjures the story and the world of the ring cycle from the bottom of the Rhine. It's a piece that is so much of its time, a work born out of the desire for a unified Germany and a masterpiece which is viewed by many as a defining work of that nation's culture. It is also often the case that the men in the story seem to generate the most column inches, as summarised in Natasha Walker's 2006 Guardian article, Wagner's Women. She writes, what everyone knows of the ring operas is that they are peopled by a hero called Siegfried, a god called Wotan, and giants and dwarves and a dragon against whom they can do battle. So Germanness and masculinity, these are two of some of the major images that circulate around this mythical saga that we are going to interrogate, or perhaps more accurately, overturn in our conversation today. I'm delighted to be joined by two leading experts in this field. Lee Bissett, who had current events not intervened, would have been playing the role of Brynhilde at Longborough, and who has previously played several other pivotal female roles in the ring cycle. Also with me is Dr. Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough, an expert in Viking Age history, BBC broadcaster and associate professor of medieval history at Durham University. So Ellie, I wondered if we could start at the very, very beginning and go back to the origins of the ring cycle itself. Could you tell us a bit about what some of the North myths are that Wagner based his version of the ring cycle on? So we really have to go back to, well, the Viking Age, which is roughly from the middle of the 8th century when the first raids start happening all the way up to possibly the 11th century. So that's the time period we're talking about. But our sources that Wagner drew on, and by far and away most of the sources that Wagner drew on were Old Norse sources, come mostly from the 13th century and they come from Iceland. So the Viking Age in the Nordic world, that's the whole of Scandinavia and then Iceland... um, Greenland for a time as well. It's it's very broad, but it's in 13th century Iceland that these sagas and myths start to be written down. And Wagner was very interested in a few in particular. Quite confusingly, two of them have the same name or nearly the same name. So we have the Poetic Edda. And the Poetic Edda is a series of mythological and legendary poems that were written down in a manuscript called the Codex Regis, the King's Manuscript, in around 1270. And the second half of this collection of poems is all the sort of material and the sort of characters that Wagner then draws on for his ring cycle. But then there are other sources as well. So there's another, this is the confusion, there's the prose edda, uh, which is a, a mythological text for poets, because to be a poet in the Viking Age and the medieval Scandinavian world, 
even once they'd converted to Christianity, you still had to know about the old Norse pagan myths and legends. And this prose edda is written again in the 13th century, again in Iceland in around 1220 by Snorri Sturluson. He's a, a politician, a historian and a poet himself. And he writes this mythological poetic handbook. So Wagner is drawing heavily on those two texts, but then he's also drawing to some extent on some of the sagas. And these are stories, these are, these are prose texts. Uh, and there's one in particular called Volsungar Saga, or the Saga of the Volsungs. And that is very much the story and the characters, again, that Wagner draws on for his ring cycle a kind of mishmash, really, of lots of different sources. And, yeah, and then, of course, there's the German stuff. So he draws a little bit on Das Nibelungenlied, which is um, from the from around 1200. And there's a little bit there that makes its way in, and it, it seems to be based on the same sort of old stories. But given how German and Germanic the ring cycle is, he draws surprisingly little. In fact, there's a letter where he says, I, if I only had that source, I couldn't have come up with the ring cycle. I needed the Icelandic material for that. And of course, these written versions, we don't know, you know when they were first told orally. Presumably, it's a, it's a transcription of something that existed you know, for centuries before that as well. Well, this is it. It's really hard to tell when these stories emerged and the poems emerged. We, the sagas and also this Edic, Edic is a style of poetry. Um, there are other types of poetry, but this, these po poems and saga texts and this mythological treatise that he's drawing on, um, they're all founded in oral storytelling traditions. And we know that, that they're being passed down the generations. And they're anonymous in terms of the sagas and the poems, which suggests that they're collectively owned in terms of the culture and the society. People are thinking of them as something that can be told around the winter fires and can be passed from generation to generation. But of course, all we have is a snapshot. We have this, in the case of the poems, this one text, this one manuscript. It doesn't mean that the person that wrote that manuscript out came up with the poems, but how far they go back, how far before the conversion to Christianity in around 1000 AD they go back, we just don't know. And that's an interesting notion, I guess, with, in terms of ownership when it comes to performing the role of Brynhilde, in that there's also a whole myth, quasi- mythological background to this role in, in terms of how it's viewed. And so, Lee, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what your performance journey has been through the ring cycle. Um, and how did you first come across Brunhilde, the operatic Brunhilde? Well, I started my first Wagner role and my first exposure to the ring was at Longborough in 2010. And I sang Sieglinde, which I've then sung since in Singapore and Brazil and for Opera North. And then I've sort of gradually made my way through all the other characters in the ring that I could possibly sing. So I've sung Gutruna and Freya and Dritanorn and uh, Gerhilde, one of the Valkyries. So I think I've sung everything that I could sing. So it, it is a sort of natural progression to move on to Brunhilde anyway. And was it a role that you always wanted to do? Is it something that you always aspired to do? I mean, I know only a handful of human beings are actually capable of doing it. So I realise it's kind of one thing wanting to do it and another thing being able to do it. So how, how did you kind of realise that you had Brunhilde within you? 
I'm sorry to say that I never had any desire to sing for <laughs> I sang Sieglinde and I fell in love. I fell in love with the music and with Sieglinde. And I made always made very good friends with my Brunhilde uh, colleagues and said, I have no desire to sing Brunhilde because Sieglinde is so fabulous. No, to, be, to be honest, to be fair, every time I sang Sieglinde, almost every performance after Sieglinde goes off to the West to have her baby um, and she's finished and you have a quick cup of tea, I always came back to watch the final scene between Brunhilde and Wotan because I do think it is one of the greatest scenes in opera. But I, I didn't really have a longing to sing Brunhilde until I was already... I did a, a studio version, a performance of uh, Goethe Demerung a couple of years ago. And it was really only in the middle of rehearsals and the director just left me. We were halfway through the opera and there was big, there was a big um, play out at the end of act two. And Brunhilde has decided, they've agreed to murder Siegfried. And she just left me there in the middle of the music and everybody else went off stage and she just said, you know, do what you want. And I, I thought, oh God, what's she doing leaving here? I don't know what to do. And I, I just stood there and the music came at me. And the music, the, the leitmotifs that I realised I knew from my experience with her before, that, 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 oh, there was Gutruna, oh, there was a Norn. And... I suddenly knew, like, like it sounds very arrogant, but in the way that Brunhilde says, I, I, I know everything, I, I just stood there and I thought, I have it all within me. I know from my years of experience singing all the other characters, I realised that I I had her too. So then, then I was desperate <laughs> to sing her. <laughs> and so to begin with, Brunhilde, we see her, she appears to be the image of this compliant daughter in that, you know, she agrees to do what Wotan asks her. But then when she sees Siegmund re reject the prospect of eternal life in the Hall of the Gods because of his love for Sieglinde, Brynhilde is moved to save the woman that he loves from destruction. And then she defies her father with these immense consequences for the rest of the cycle. And I know a lot of fuss is made about the, the Helden tenor role, the hero tenor role of Siegfried. But do you think there's an argument that Brunhilde, I know she's the Valkyrie of the title of the, sec of the second opera, but you know, do you think that she is the true hero of the story? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I think there's no doubt. I, I mean, in terms of accomplishing the deed that has to be accomplished, which is getting the ring back from Fafner and returning it to the Rhine Maidens, they're both needed. It's like um, Pamina and Tamino, in Magic Flute, they're, they're both necessary to accomplish the tasks. And so Brunhilde and Siegfried are needed. There's no way that Brunhilde could take the ring from the dragon. And Siegfried is, Siegfried's sort of like a cartoon hero, I think. I mean, he's like, he's like Superman. He is amazingly strong and he has this sort of purity of spirit, but he's sort of unreal in a way. So he has the, the capability of getting the ring back but it's Brunhilde, I think, that goes on the human journey. She's the character that, that we can all identify with. Even, even in Valkyrie, when she's a so-called goddess, she's, she's still v extremely human. And I mean, she doesn't start out as, 
a hero. She starts out there very clear that she just does what her father wants. And it's just little by little that she starts asserting her own free will. She takes the steps towards becoming becoming the hero that is needed. Well, I was just, I was thinking, it's amazingly telling because that characterization of the men and the women, the men as, yeah, these larger-than-life superheroes, but pretty hollow, shiny, not particularly psychologically exciting, versus the women who are human, who are psychologically complex, who oh, you can really identify with on, on this very, very human fundamental level. That's very much a feature of the Old Norse texts as well, both the sagas and the mythological heroic material. It's the women over and over again that you feel you're real, you have all the dimensions, and the men are often these glittering husks. So I think it's fascinating that, that, that that's what Lee also is, is reading from the opera. And <laughs> I mean, it's interesting as well, because that's often a criticism that's levelled at you know, male composers of opera that women are sometimes seen as these kind of ciphers for, you know, what what a what a woman should be supposedly in musical terms. But there's there seems to be such depth in Brunhilde certainly, and and many of the women in the cycle. In Brunhilde and Sieglinde, but to be fair, in Wotan as well. I mean, he he there is so much depth to Wotan. We mustn't we mustn't just say that all the men are ciphers. It's just Siegfried. And I guess while we're on the subject of, of the kind of mythical uh, of Brunhilde's old Norse ancestry before she gets to Wagner, could you tell us, Elia, maybe a bit more about who, who or what are the Valkyries and, and, and maybe about some of Brunhilde's other adventures before she was fixed in Wagnerian form in the opera? So the word Valkyrie um, gives us the clue to everything. It's it's from the Old Norse Valkyria, which means the choosers of the slain, because, of course, it's that image that we know so well from Wagner of these women descending on the battlefield and picking up the dead that are destined to go to Odin's halls in Valhalla. Although I should point out that, um, at least in one Old Norse mythological uh, text, it's not just Odin who has the the glorious halls of, of the warriors um, via Valhalla. Freya also is said to get the other half of the dead to join her in her halls, the dead warriors, that is. So again, there's, it's, it's, it's not as cut and dried in terms of the male-female roles in the mythology. So Valkyries appear in many of these old Norse sources that... that you know, we, we can talk about. They feature in the Poetic Edda, so this 13th century manuscript containing so many of the poems that Wagner was drawing on. They've got wonderful names. They're, they're called things like Gorl, which means tumult, and then Gunnar, which means battle, Skegöld, which is axe age, Sigurdrifa, which is victory urger, and then, of course, Brynhilde herself. It means something like armour battle. And all that, once again, hints at their very bloody occupation. And for Snorri Sturluson, who wrote the Prose Edda, this mythological poetic handbook in 13th century Iceland, the Valkyries are presented as almost uh, mythological barmaids for Valhalla. You know, they're serving the drinks every night and they appear on visual sources from the Viking Age. So on runic uh, pictures for example, where they're offering what seem to be horns, drinking horns, to the dead as they reach Valhalla. 
Now, the interesting thing about Brynhilde is it's possible that there are historical antecedents that, that go way back before the Old Norse texts. And it's interesting that some of the Old Norse texts are very much harking back to the migration period. So we're talking after the Roman Empire, the 6th century, Roman Empire's collapsed, is very much what used to be called the darkest of the Dark Ages, so to speak. And there was a character called Brynhilde, who was a Visigothic princess. So she came from northern Spain, and she lived in, in the middle of the 6th century, or that's when she was born. And she ended up being married to a king up in the Frankish uh, region, so what's now France and Germany. Um, and he was a king called Sigebert, who was having awful trouble with his half-brother, Chilprick. And Brynhilde comes and gets in on the act because she then promptly starts a feud with Chilprick's wife called Fredegund, who's another absolutely amazing character. So again, like the old Norse sources, like Wagner, we have an awful lot of dynastic family feuds and it all gets very, very bloody. And Brynhilde actually ends up becoming regent, as it were, three times for her son, for her grandson, and then for her great grandson. But in the end, when she reaches old age, uh, her her past and her feuds catch up with her. So she's actually sentenced to death by the son of Fredegund, her old enemy. By this time, Fredegund's dead. And it's said that she's taken through the streets on camelback and then she's torn apart by wild horses. And then according to, to one 8th century Frankish text, so a couple of centuries later, she's then burnt on a pyre. It says that was where her end was, her bones were burnt. So actually it's not a million miles away from the ending that Brynhilde then has all the way forward in the 19th century when she she finds her voice with Wagner. So in, in itself, I mean, I think, I think the possibly historical Brynhilde would be worth her own opera. It's, it's an amazing period and, and it's very bloody and very exciting. The reference to the Valkyries serving drinking horns, Brynhilde makes reference to that in Valkyrie as well when she's when she's telling Siegmund how enticing Valhalla will be. That's one of the things she mentions, that you will be given your drink by one of the Valkyries. So he gets that in there as well. I mean, that brings us quite nicely to some other very early sources and other kind of mythical precedents we have for, for this kind of female defiance as well is is in Sophocles' play Antigone. The chorus tells Antigone that she is the victim of her own self-will and, and obviously it all ends very badly for her as well. And I was wondering, Lee, what, what do you think, is Valkyra a tragedy? The tra is there tragedy in the fact that both Wotan and Brunhilde are unwilling to compromise and this is the kind of rift that emerges between them? I think Wotan can't compromise. I think he's, we've seen, he's tied himself in so many knots that there's nowhere for him to go. And in a way, the story of Valkyrie is Brunhilde asserting her free will. So she says in the final scene, I, I had to see what you couldn't see. I had to see Siegmund. And so 
Votan's so interested in seeing the big picture and she sees the little people. She she sees the people who are actually affected and that that's what makes her do what she does. And in a way for her, there was no other choice. If she wanted to stay in Valhalla, she would have to only do what Votan wanted. She could have no free will. By asserting her free will, she has to leave Valhalla. The gods don't have free will. It's the mortals that have free will. That makes me think, though, about the punishment that Brunhilde is given, which is, you know, it's, a, it's, it's her body that is, that is sacrificed in a way. I mean, we're not talking liver being pecked out, but in a way it's, it's not that far off <laughs> in a sense that, you know, Brian McGee writes that when Wotan disgraces Brunhilde by putting her to sleep on a rock, the chief point of her punishment is that whether she likes it or not, she will belong to the first man who finds her. And this leads us to quite a big issue for the female characters in the cycle, in that they are often, if not almost always, forcibly subjugated by men, Friar, Sieglinde, Gatruna. This kind of violence is one of the central themes of the story. And you know, even with the theft of the gold from the Rhine maidens, this is a kind of metaphorical rape some people have seen it as. And I think it's interesting that you know, Wagner originally titled the Rhine Gold as Der Raub des Rheingoldes, so the theft of the Rheingold, but this word theft or Raub has the same etymological root as rape. And it's, you know, Alberich's rejected affection, you know, his resentment that causes him to steal the gold. So I was wondering, Lee and Ellie, I guess, what is your perspective on, on Wagner's treatment of female bodies in his operas? And similarly, do we see something like that, you know, happening in the Norse myths? as well well I, yes I, I, everything you said i agree with him he women are currency and Freya is the the best example of that i mean votan until all his family stops him is ready to use Freya to pay the giants for the work they've done building his house and when his family objects, he, he says, OK, well, you can keep Friar for the moment and then I'll bring back until I bring back some gold. Now, what do you think happens to a woman who is given on loan to some angry giants? Um, what happens in that time? And, and that's never something that we really is really referenced in the opera. But... I think in a lot of productions it's quite clear what has what has happened and even when they bring her back she's so degraded that they pile up the gold to cover her up that's the amount of gold the giants want they want enough gold until she's completely erased not even the glint of her eye must come through and, and that's very clear how much currency Freya is um, and Gutruna Gutruna is also part of a bartering arrangement. She's used to, she's used as bait for Siegfried. We'll give you, we'll give you Gutruna, who they have already, they've already made Siegfried fall in love with, with the magic potion. You can have Gutruna if you will go through the Ring of Fire and bring back Brunhilde for um, Gunther. So. Um, that's poor Gutruna, who I think of as a victim in this way as well, because she doesn't know. She doesn't know about Brunhilde. She just hero worships 
Siegfried. She's she's caught up and she's another victim, I think. And then Sieglinde goes through the most harrowing time. She's abducted as a child and sold as a wife to um, Hunding. And you can tell what sort of character Hunding is by his music. You know, boom, 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 boom. He's, he's a bad guy. That's a very unhappy marriage. And when she finally finds her person, she finds her person and she asserts her agency. She, she drugs her husband to sleep so that she can escape with Siegmund and they escape and they have one blissful moment. And then she loses her mind. I mean, act two is basically for Sieglinde, a psychotic episode in which she's racked with guilt, not for sleeping with her brother, incestuously. She's racked for guilt for the fact that by having slept with Hunding without love, she is somehow besmirching her wonderful brother. So really the only thing that Ze saves Zieglinda is Brunhilde. The fact that she then knows that she's going to have a baby. So uh, yes, it's a theme through f for all the women that, that they are I don't know, they're, they're punished as well. They're punished for having sex. Sieglinde's punished for having sex with Siegmund by going, by going mad. And Brunhilde is punished for having sex with Siegfried because she loses all her power. She has this, this um, she calls it her Vicent, her knowingness, something that she gets from her mother, Erda. She just knows things. She knows that, that Sieglinde is pregnant. She, she knows a lot, and as soon as she has sex with Siegfried, that disappears. And we don't know quite how, but again, it's another punishment for having, for having sex. So I think, in a way, within this culture, it's a huge surprise that Brunhilde manages to come through as someone with agency. She, comes, she does come through, she forges her own path and comes through as a heroine, but it's despite the world that she lives in. There's some truth in that as well in the in the old Norse text. There's certainly echoes of that idea of both savagery and control of women, but also agency and finding ways in which to subvert or rebel against quite violent, incredibly violent at times, male control. Um, to some extent, it depends what sort of source material you're looking at. So the sagas are, well, the sagas... That, that people will often be most familiar with are set in Iceland in the first few centuries of um, the settlement of Iceland. So from the late 9th century up to, say, the 11th, 12th century. And women in there are often married off without any say by their fathers, by their brothers. But what you often see in the narrative is... What a stupid thing that is to do, because women will often come back and find a way to reassert their own agency and dominance. And one of the most interesting examples of that is very much relevant to what we're talking about. It's called Laxdyla Saga, the saga of the people of, well, literally Salmon Valley. And it's been suggested that in the love triangle, or actually it's a love square for some of the time, um, between 
uh, two half brothers called Kjartan and Botli, and then a formidable woman called Gudrun, who's married four times, has one other love affair, and outlives all the men, not entirely coincidentally. It's been suggested that this is actually um, the myth of Brynhild and Gudrun and um, Sigurdr translocated onto a realistic saga society setting and so actually these characters are what would happen in that context if these mythological figures are brought down onto a human scale but it's significant that the most important the most psychologically complex the most ruthless in the end character is Gudrun who is initially married off against her will to a very unpleasant very violent man manages to find a way to divorce him and then works her way through husbands and a lover with a huge amount of agency and intelligence and ruthlessness it's, it's not it's not very um it's, it's, it's not a fluffy flowery story by any means but it is significant that that happens and then within the mythological sources so you know the gods and the legendary characters that we've talked about again the female characters are often mucked around with but it's then what happens to them so uh lee mentioned freya or who is in the Old Norse text Freya. Now, again, in the Old Norse stories, she is repeatedly an object of desire for the giants. And a lot of Wagner's material there does come very closely um, in line with the Old Norse sources. But when um, there's there's a, an amazing poem in the Poetic Edda, this collection of, of poems, where Thor wakes up and he finds his hammer has been stolen. And his hammer, it turns out, has been stolen by the giants. And they want to exchange the hammer, which is the big source of protection for the gods against the giants, for Freya. So this giant wants Freya as his wife. But what's really interesting is Freya's response, um, which is is almost unprintable. I mean, she's not having any of it. She's like, nope, nope, that's not happening. Thank you very much. You go off and deal with this. This is your problem, you stupid men. And so what then happens is that Loki, classically known as the trickster god, persuades Thor with his big red beard and his big muscles to dress up as Freya in drag. And the two of them with Loki, who is very interesting sexually and in terms of his gender fluidity, Loki is very happy to be the female handmaiden of Thor as Freya, who has a veil to cover his big beard. And the two of them go off to the land of the giants to persuade the giants that actually this is Freya and she's desperate to marry this giant and of course it ends up with them getting the hammer back and then Thor killing all the giants but what's interesting is Freya's response at the beginning which is there is no way I'm doing this you go sort this out this is your problem and also the other character that's really interesting within the context of the ring cycle is Gudrun as she's known in the Old Norse mythological texts because again she starts off and in a way, I think she doesn't really seem to develop past this to the same extent in Wagner's Ring Cycle, but she starts off very much as a victim who is pushed around and married off and used and abused and is very much just a, a, a pawn in the games of these powerful males and gods. 
But it's what happens to her after Sigurdr's death. So once Brynhilda and Sigurdr have died, Gudrun is married off to a man called Atli. And Atli is probably um, the, well, historically that would have been Attila the Hun. But Atli is really problematic and he lures Guthrun's brothers, Gunnar and Högni, to his halls so he can basically kill them, which he manages. But it's Guthrun's response to this, which is, uh, depending on which poem you're looking at, she basically kills her sons with Atli in order to punish Atli for what he did. And she feeds them to him and then she kills Atli and then she sets the halls on fire. And th there's a wonderful um, verse d describing what the poem thinks of Guthrun and what happens to her. It says, This is the whole tale. Henceforth, no wife will dress in armour like her in order to avenge her brothers. Before she died, this bright lady was responsible for the death of three kings and of a nation. And so once again, it's this motif that we see coming up again and again, whatever area of Old Norse literature we're looking at, which is the woman who has been pushed too far until she snaps. And then she does actually take back that agency and she takes terrible vengeance on the men who messed around with her in the first place. And I was wondering as well, I guess, I mean, we can bring this back, of course, to, to Wagner's text, because of course he wrote the libretto for all of the ring cycle, but... What are some of the distinctive features of these these poetic Edda, you know, that, that Wagner was trying to mimic? I mean, and can, can you maybe demonstrate a little bit for us? I, I can do a little bit. Hopefully no Icelanders are listening. That's always my worry. But, but it is true that Wagner was directly influenced by this Eddic verse form. So to very briefly say, I say Eddic, there are two main verse forms, give or take. So one is skaldic verse. And skaldic verse is by named poets. And it's it reads like a cryptic crossword. All the lines jumble together and there's very strict rules about what goes where and everything like that. Now, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Eddic poetry. And Eddic poetry is more straightforward. It's more readable. But it also has these very strong alliterative features and Wagner very much picked up on that. And you can, I'm sure um, Lee might be able to give us some examples, but, but it's very much there in his version of, of, of these, these myths. So I've got, a, I've got a verse, it's the last verse of a poem from the poetic edda called Hellreid Brynhildar, which means Brynhildar's Hellride. So Brynhildar and Sigurdr have just been burned on their funeral pyres and Brynhildar's been burned on a wagon, which then takes her down onto, into the underworld for her journey to the, to the next life. And as she's trundling along the road to hell, she passes by the dwelling of a giantess. And this giantess comes out and starts berating her for basically being a husband stealer and saying, well, you know, you, you stole a woman's husband. That was pretty uncool. You, um, you, you brought about the ending of, of whole dynasties. How can you possibly justify that? And very tellingly, Brynhilde is absolutely able to justify that. And she describes how much she was messed around in the past and how this is all a response to yeah, people trying to control her. 
And this is her last verse. She says, Munu vid ovstrith, alz tilengi, konur o karla, kvikfir faidask, vid skulum okrum, aldri slita, sigother salmon, sukstu giyakin, which means forever with grief and all too long must men and women be born, but we two will never part, sigother and I, sink down, giantess. Yeah, Lee, what's your thoughts on that and anything that the operatic Brunhilde can, can offer in reply? Well, it, well, I mean, it's so interesting to hear about the, the use of alliteration in, in their original text because that is something that, that Wagner goes for all the time. I mean, in nearly every line of the opera, he uses alliteration to show the words that he thinks are important. I had chosen a piece of text for you, but that actually doesn't show that. So maybe I should change. But um, for singing, he he gives us these he gives us lots and lots of vzz, you know voice consonants and sh and s that are that are so um, great to sing on. But I had chosen just a little bit. He's he's very very careful always to avoid repetition, and this is the only time I think where he uses repetition of words poetically. This is just at the opening of the act three, scene three, when Brunhilde and Wotan are left on their own. She says, War es so schmählich, was ich verbrach, dass mein Verbrechen so schmählich du bestrafst. War es so niedrig, was ich dir tat, dass du so tief mir Erniedrigung schaffst. So she says, was it so shameful what I did wrong that my misdeed is so shamefully punished? And was it so base what I did to you that you should debase me so deeply? And the music here is so strange in that there's no orchestra. There's no orchestra for half a page. And we have these awkward leaps and... Because there's no orchestra, we don't know what key we're in. So you realise that she doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know how to talk to him. She's just sort of talking and seeing what happens. And eventually she finds a key and the orchestra come in and she finds a way of, of addressing the, the problem that she's, that she's made. But I've, I've, I, I just chose that bit because it's the one bit where he deliberately uses repetition. I mean, there's an interesting thing there, I think, about, you know, Brunhilde, the, the human, and Brunhilde, the, the goddess. And why, why do opera composers so often find themselves drawn to myths? And, and what is it about, you know, mythology, which, as, as Ellie was saying, you know, is, is such a mutable art form in its original form, you know, before it's transcribed. It, it, very, it so much belongs to the teller. But then by comparison, you have the, the polar opposite, really, of opera, where everything is so precisely notated. I think Wagner tried more than any composer to dictate. I mean, he, he dictated what the scenery should have looked like. He, he tried to dictate everything, but the fact is, you can't. It's a collaborative art form. He, he, he can't dictate how... He can try. He can put as many markings in, in, in as he likes, but there's still a certain way that everything that all the artists involved bring is going to be different every time and there's space within those myths the, the, you, you say why are people why are composers drawn to the myths it's because they're so human isn't it they're so human that they leave the space 
for us to see ourselves. And the more realistic you make a production, the more the more it's like a soap opera. In a way, you exclude people, you stop people imagining themselves, I, I think. And the other thing about myths is that they deal with huge emotions and opera by its nature has to deal with huge emotions because why do you sing? I mean, I mean, you don't just sing, oh, well, I'm off to brush my teeth. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense. You, you only sing when, when words don't, when words aren't enough and you need music to tell something more. So the fact that myths are always on the grand scale is, is very suited to opera. Yeah, I think it's really significant that, as you say, they're grand scale, but they're also human scale. And Norse myths are, I think, rather like Greek myths or Roman myths. They, they're they very different to, say, in Abrahamic religions, where the idea of God is very much all-knowing, all-powerful, but separate and judgmental from on high. Whereas the wonderful thing about Norse Greek um, gods is that, of course, they, exactly as you say, they operate within the human world. They're bawdy, they're larger than life, they can be really stupid, they, they're flatulent, they fornicate, they drink, you know, they're, they're, they're a lot more fun. But we can also then identify something within ourselves. And of course, exactly as you say, they operate within the human world as well. They come down, it's Zeus in a shower of, of, of whatever he's, he's, he's actually in the shower, or it's, it's Odin trying to sleep with as many women as possible on earth, or whoever it is. It's very much that sense that the gods are amongst us, with us, around us, and as flawed and as stupid and as vain as we are and I think it's really interesting that you say Lee that with every performance you have that space you, you can't Wagner can't control everything about the performance and how people interpret it and again I'd say that is very much I think a feature of these Old Norse texts because we only have them today because they survived being written down in a moment but of course, they were orally transmitted. They were performed, these Eddic poems were probably performed with music and always in different contexts, with different voices, with different emphases, their performances. And so again, they change. Or the, 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 what people care about within a story is going to change depending on who's telling the story or where they're telling it or who the audience is, whether you're telling it for a load of little Viking children or for the, the, the whole family and the elders, you know. So, again, what we have, and historically people often struggle with that. When you look back in time, there's a tendency to view things as a kind of idealised canon of textual sources that are perfect and inert as they are. But of course, that's absolutely not the case with the sagas, with the mythology, with the legends. And it didn't, it, it wasn't even the case after they were written down. So sure, we have a few manuscripts, but these stories kept on being told. And Wagner is very much part of that tradition as it, it appears in the 19th century, but the same is absolutely true of performers of Wagner today. That I, I think very much that you're part of this mythological storytelling tradition going all the way back to the Viking Age. 
Yes, I, I, I think we, we in, in music are always told that we have to be so faithful to the text and, and we have to, we have to be faithful to the text, exactly as you're saying, but by the same token, we have to make what we're doing relevant to the audience that is listening today. I mean, we're, we're playing for a 21st century audience, not a 19th century audience. And the fact is that these pieces allow that. They, there is space in them to make them relevant now and as, as relevant now as they were 200 years ago. The, the treatment of women is problematic, but the treatment of women nowadays is problematic. Um, certainly the last few years in the Me Too movement, uh, has only highlighted that. So, again, things are relevant. And so, again, when we ask questions like, well, was Wagner sexist, for example? Well, yes, by our standards, but today there's a enormous amount of sexism by anyone's standards. So, so it, it, these things are no less relevant now. But as you say, you have to remake them and change the emphasis and make sure you're speaking the truth within these myths and these legends as it is now as well as it was then. I think that's, that's brought us to a really lovely conclusion, actually, that you know we began talking about Iceland and Greenland and Germany, and, and we've kind of ended up at this, this kind of plane in a way where I think with these stories that, you know, the openness that the form allows, the kind of the mixture of constraint and space, in a way allows you to leave all of that kind of baggage behind and and they are open to interpretation. That's that's the beauty of them. And in the moment of performance, you know, they can move us. And 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 I think that in a way is the lesson that they they can teach us, or they continue to teach us. And and how pleasing that you know, Brunhilde can can adapt and continue to defy her creator, <laughs> whether whether it's Wotan or Wagner. I think uh, that's very satisfying somehow. <laughs> that's that's a great place to end. So yeah, thank you so much, Lee and Ellie for joining me thank you for listening you can subscribe to these podcasts and find out more about Longborough Festival Opera via our website